Hey guys, this is Daniel Hayward, and you're listening to Socratic Hobbits. We have Elliot Dickinson, co-founder of Treefort, a tech startup in Moscow, Idaho. As always, it's a meandering conversation. Thanks for listening. Something that still sticks with me after having this conversation is what is our role as Christian Christians and workers in an increasingly diverse America? Should we stake out safe havens, or is our call to be or do something else? That's right. Oh, that's right. Kyle, Kyle held us up. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Daniel, it's good to meet you. I don't think I've I've met you in person. Have I? Uh, if we would have met, it would have been at Kyle's wedding, but that was some years ago. Yeah. And it would have been brief. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to yeah. meet you. Where Where are you? Are you in? Uh, I'm area? in Vancouver, Washington. Okay. Just a hop, skip, and a jump away. Yeah. So, yeah. Where are you? Uh, Moscow. Okay. Someone, someone was recently telling me that Moscow was a, uh, let's see if I say it right, a blue dot in a sea of red. That is correct. Yeah, and we actually just had primaries today. Huh. State elections. I, uh, I just, I, I said I can't imagine Kyle living there. That's why Kyle lives in Pullman. <laughs> the red dot in the sea of blue. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Vancouver is just pretty blue, right? No, Vancouver uh, used to be more red. Uh, it's getting more purple. Okay. Yeah. They they finally Is it really just King County. Like yeah. Okay. I yeah. mean, we're like we have a lot of influence from Portland. Okay. Yeah. 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 We finally got enough people from Portland in uh, Vancouver to get the I five bridge with public transit and all that. It's not. It's not published. It's not passed yet. It's close. Not going to happen. They want to toll it. They want to toll both bridges. They want to toll more than just... They want to toll, I think, most of the bridges in Portland. That's what it sounds like. I was reading reading about it. I'm like, wow. That is going to... Like, Portland hates their drivers. <laughs> That's just what, it's, it's what it comes down to. But... Get a bike. Mm, well, I'll, I'll work from home before I get a bike. I will say that is one of the wonderful things about Moscow, where Elliot lives, is that it's very set up for riding a bike just about mm. anywhere. Um, it is. You do have to commit to the street, like the side. I, the, Moscow has the worst sidewalks in. Oh yeah, I, I don't know. We I, I think they're all OG eighteen hundred. <laughs> when the state was founded, when it yeah, turned from a territory, they were like, "Now's the time to put the sidewalks in." Yeah, <laughs> we have just figured out the secret formula to cement. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's all the trees, you know. Yeah, we have some of those here. So I don't know, Daniel, do you want to just paste in the in, the brief intro I gave to Elliot <laughs> when we were waiting for him? Or I don't know what you're talking about. Do you want me to introduce him <laughs> again? Uh, I wasn't recording, man. Should be a really short introduction, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, Kyle. Why don't you, now that you've had practice, why don't you, why don't you go through it again and you introduce, you can introduce Elliot. Well, Elliot and I really bonded around snow sports. The first time we really spent a lot of time together was was skiing. Not that that has any relevance to this podcast. This is so different from how you started last time. 
<laughs> Actually, if I may, if I may correct the record, I I think earliest was lacrosse. Okay, but well, uh, earliest was bringing all your lightsabers on the bench. We just never quite like connected there. <laughs> all right. Okay, so you guys have known each other a little while. You got you got it years. How many years? So third grade, I would have been twenty-two years this fall. Hmm. Yeah, about. Wow. As Taylor Swift said, I don't know about you. Feeling twenty-two. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's but, that's the podcast title. Yeah, we went to Logos together. Um, okay. For you know, basically what you said third grade college. I was third grade. You started first grade? Yeah. Yep. All the way and through. Then, and then you of I, you did Emmy and I did uh Compi. Compi, yeah. Yeah. Like you wish you did Comp Sci, but yeah, you ended up doing right. Compi. But I was told Daniel, as I recall, the first time I mean, we're gonna talk about your programming company at the core, it's a development software development company. But as I recall, the first time you actually touched a computer was in junior high. Yeah, and it was actually your dad. Well, so I found I found a beige desktop. I don't know anything more about it than that. <laughs> like a young set on the street. I got it plugged in. All the finest computers are beige. Super cool, but I had no idea what to do with it. And somehow your dad found out and gave me, like back when software came in a box, I got the Visual Basic box. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And one of the O'Reilly books on what Visual Basic was. And uh, yeah, I, just, I made like, you know, I, I followed the instructions and made a calculator. And then I remember, remember, you know, making a game, but it was with Visual Basic and like the, the Windows edition. So there was like the game was like buttons that, you know, the spaceship was like a button that would fly across. <laughs> <laughs> it was you know, pretty dairy rigged. But <laughs> no, that sounds amazing. So that was your start with, with software development. And then you started interning at MZ. Well, at the time it was CC Benefits, which bummed me out because we were both going to get advanced in math together. And then you decided to go out and work. Oh, was that an either or? I, I don't remember that. I think we had once one term of math together, right? Yeah. And then, yeah, they had a, I was like their, I think they decided to have an internship program. CC Benefits was like the the local economic, uh, they did, you know, labor market statistics for community colleges. Hmm. And um, yeah, I, I was basically, they decided to start an internship program to sort of give back. So I was sort of their community, you know, project. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember starting there and, you know, it was four or five guys. There were some like folding tables. Actually, that's not true. It must've been 10 at that point. But I think, you know, our there was like two rooms and our room was five or six guys. You had a ping pong table too at some point. I remember visiting. Yeah, well, it, it grew, but yeah, I, I, I got a folding chair and a laptop, and like they just kind of said, "Go learn PHP." <laughs> so, <laughs> Were yeah. you working off of the ping pong table, or? <laughs> I don't think so. Okay, that that's good. Later. Yeah, 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 but, uh, yeah, and then um, yeah, then it became MZ and grew rapidly, and uh, now it's. I mean, it's still in town. They have a. The biggest building in Moscow, I think, is kind of there. Four stories. Yeah, four stories. It's pretty. It's pretty exciting. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I was there up until the end of college, and then I, I think I took a break during college. No, no, I was there three times. Well, at one point you took a break to go to Chile. 
Yeah. Well, I took a break because I was having trouble focusing on school and, and work. Um, I remember going and talking to my manager and being like, I feel like I'm not really doing my best at MZ right now. And he said, yeah, I feel like that too. <laughs> <laughs> so I took, a, I took a break. I did a semester abroad. And then I actually went back near the end of school, I think our senior year. Um, and that was really, that was right when MZ started to kind of get organized and got an HR department started to really take off. And it was fun. But then when I graduated, a friend in Seattle uh, basically recruited me for Amazon. So I headed over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kyle, what was your timeline for heading over Vancouver ways? Um, it was a couple years after you because I did a two-year detour. I kind of joked with Daniel that I didn't really do a whole lot of school during undergrad because I was playing lacrosse. And so I figured I needed the school experience. So I decided to get a graduate degree in the same program that I'd gotten an undergrad degree. But that also took me down to California for a couple of summers. So that was cool too. And then it was after that, I guess you did an extra year or half year. I took me, yeah, I think it, I think a full extra year. I split basically the last, my study abroad term, the credits I missed, I split over a whole year and just kind of, which gave you the opportunity to tutor me in Python. Yeah, yeah. We took a, um, was it a machine learning class? Artificial, was it artificial intelligence or? Oh, evolutionary algorithms. Yeah, that was a fun class. Hmm. Yeah. Making, uh, what did we do? We made ants walk through mazes and. My ants marched very randomly. <laughs> yeah. That was my worst assignment. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a good time. Okay, so you you get through college, you go over to Amazon, you make Jeff a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. And then and then what happens? Or what did you what did you do for Amazon actually? Um, so I started. Uh, I I bounced around a lot. Near the beginning, it was um, sort of uh, not of my own volition. Like Amazon as a company is very the the structure is pretty flat, hmm. and they're constantly like you know, teams are constantly spinning up and spooling down and they're reorganizing. So I had like three teams in the first few months there. Oh boy. And everything from, I think I worked on the, the SMS servers that, you know, would send out text messages when orders were delivered. I had no idea it was what I was doing. So that, that was like, a, that was a pretty rough time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I, near the beginning, uh, or after kind of a bouncing around for a bit, I, I ended up on the the team that worked on the your orders page and the shipment tracking page. Hmm. So my first kind of big experience there was rebuilding the shipment tracking page um, from scratch, which, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of good learnings there because, you know, I naively, you know, I think every developer has the story where they find a code base they don't like, they throw it out and start from scratch. And, and mm-hmm. that's what we did. And uh, it was... Um, it was a pretty intense experience when you're just, you know, you're firing up a page that gets, I think it was, you know, 45 million views a day or something like that. So mm-hmm. dial your change up to a half a percent and gather, you know, 200,000 errors to inspect <laughs> and dial it back down. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then eventually I worked my way over to a, a prototyping job, which is kind of what I did for most of my time at Amazon. Mm-hmm. I was in the operations org. Um, I would... I'd build prototypes uh, of basically software to serve truck drivers or Hmm. people in the warehouses, people stocking shelves, people kind of managing the yards, um, all that sort of stuff. And um, 
before things got to official developers, I would help a designer build a high fidelity prototype to take out and test with people, which was pretty fun. So we got to travel around quite a bit and, you know, experiment with software and get feedback. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, which is great. And then at the very end, I became a manager um, with working on a design system. So same space operations, but we were building kind of low level building blocks, like the, the Legos of app interfaces. We were building buttons and hmm. date makers and that sort of thing that other teams would then use to quickly build up apps. What was that date? What? The date of that? No, oh, sorry. So UI controls. So if you okay. think, you know, like radio buttons and sliders mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, we built sort of Lego, you know, the, the low level Lego pieces that then other development teams could put together into actual apps. Hmm. Um, so the it's sort of DevOps developer operation. Um, okay. Yeah. So I managed a team doing that. And that, that was kind of the end of my career there just because uh, I think I was there for, I was there for six and a half years and the first five were very, very non-political and I was very open with my faith and, you know, it was a Mm. good, it was a pretty good environment, hard workers, everyone was pretty happy. And then um, when all the unrest began and COVID, everyone got very unhappy and work got very political. And I just, Mm. you know, I I didn't make it as a Christian manager there. So So now you're a Christian manager at a explicitly Christian company, which I still don't know how to I feel like I've had multiple conversations with you intending to ask, so what is it you're building? But then we end up getting derailed into other fun conversations. So Daniel's here to keep mm-hmm. us on us on track about yeah. what it is you're building, why you're building it, and what the vision is for Treefort. Yeah. Do you want do you just want what is Treefort or a little bit of the the story of how it got started? Mm. Probably the longer version of what either of those. We've got some time. We'll be quick to interrupt and interject. Well, so I think it was about three years ago that I moved back to to Moscow and I was working remotely for Amazon for about, uh, it might have been four years ago. So I was working remotely for Amazon from Moscow. And so I was in a co-working space. I shared uh, my brother's three of my brothers and then uh, another guy that one of my brothers was working with. We kind of went together on this office downtown. Was it in the four story building or? No, not the fancy one. We're in the McConnell building, which is. Um, historic one. It's, it's, it's very historic. historic. Yeah. I imagine like steam pipes running everywhere, yeah. all sorts of toilets food. coming unglued from walls. Yeah. There was just a major flood and at like, it almost destroyed, you know, a quarter of the building. <laughs> okay, oh now. boy. Okay, so you guys, you guys rent an office. So we rented an office there. Um, so while I was, while Amazon was kind of, you know, the the writing was on the wall there, uh, and I was kind of thinking, you know, if if this doesn't work out, what's my next move going to be? And um, one of the guys sharing the co working space, um, he works for a local publisher here in Moscow, um, a Christian publisher called Canon Press. And they had just started, they had launched an app where they were for the first time kind of selling digital subscriptions to all their audiobooks and podcasts and videos and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it was working out super well for them financially, but on the tech side, they couldn't find a company that quite fit their needs. Um, a, a white label software company that sort of would power the app for them because they're, they're not a tech company and they sort of don't want to be, they just want to be able to sell subscriptions to their stuff. Yeah. So um, he was in this co-working space with me kind of 
talking about how that just wasn't working out and they really needed a different technical solution. And then I got fired and, you know, sort of the light bulb went off. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we met and talked about it for a while. And that's, that's how Treeport got started, which is the name of our business. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, the, uh, we still, I, sh- I should have this, I should have the tagline, like the two sentence version, but I keep, it keeps, it keeps changing and, you are the CTO, not the CEO. So maybe just co-founder, like we don't, you know, it's hard to be a CTO when you have, you know, two developers, one of which is you and the other is your brother. So I'm just, well, you no, no, did no. have three before John stole him. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we had a, a part-time student from a local college as well. I told him he owes you a, a bottle of scotch or bourbon or something, yeah, or something, you know, yeah, or like, uh, whatever, you know, whatever, uh, a unicorn tech startup startup stock is worth um, <laughs> about as much as a unicorn in this universe, which is yeah, you know, not right. a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Based on market valuations from like you know a few months ago, not now. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so you okay? You don't have the two sentence tagline, but surely you have uh, a three sentence tagline. Yeah, and probably I mean the, the easiest way. Let's see. So, so Canon Press is a publisher and, and they want an app, but they don't want to build an app. They just want somewhere where they can sell subscriptions to their content. I'm with you. So another company to, to sort of procure an app and then slap their label on it and put their content in it. So that's called white label software. I mean, white label is kind of a term across a lot of industries. So um, Wix is a white label website. Is that accurate? Yeah, basically. Yeah. And really any, any site builder, I guess you could call white label. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so we're sort of building. Yeah, it's it's white label software for um, digital media streaming, and you can think of it kind of like Wix. It's it's sort of um, you know it's it's a B two B model in terms of our sales. So a company would come to us and they'd mm-hmm. want to buy our software, and they um, you know they'd pay a monthly subscription and basically get access to an app builder where. Mm-hmm like Squarespace or Wix, where you can kind of design your website and launch it, they can design and launch their app. And um, the apps are specifically designed to, you know, stream video and audio podcasts, that sort of thing. Um, And then they can sell subscriptions to it. So So, so that sounds a little bit like what you did when you were managing the team at Amazon before you left. It is not. It's actually... Okay. Never mind. We just, you know, being kind of <laughs> it's not, and then also for legal reasons, it's not. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're, no, really. Um, it's so there. We were, you know, we were pretty laser focused on just building um, tools for developers. Okay. And it was it was more like a um, a development library that you'd plug into, you know, any app. You're this building is a, classes and methods. Yeah. So, so the pieces to it are kind of, you know, we have, um, we have the app that you can launch to iOS and Android and a web component to it. And then there's an admin site where the business that's subscribing to the app can go and and design it, you know, change the logo, upload content. Um, so, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just, yeah, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you and I'm going to apologize every time. So, but do you help? Uh, like Canon Press do this? Or is there somebody on their side that's fairly technically capable in order to kind of set their site or their app up? That's actually a great question. How technically capable are you aiming this product to be? 
so need to be. it's made for people who are not technical at all. Um, okay. So, so you'd log in and, and it's sort of, it's sort of like drag and drop, you know, that's how you build your app. And then, you know, you can connect it to your Vimeo account and just have, you know, you upload videos and just, Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, it's a little, yeah, it, it's very, it's kind of niche and a little difficult to explain, but you know, that, that also means you can sell it for more, you know? <laughs> yeah. Cause it's very, uh, the, the complexity, um, it's, uh, I guess it sort of it sort of has to do with the B two B model. Selling to businesses is a little you know um, a little bit more of a a subscription for us is going to be you know one subscription B two B is you know maybe a thousand subscriptions in terms of an actual consumer. Oh sure, sure. So in terms of scaling the business, as you think about that, what number of businesses does Treefort need to support kind of different tiers of scale? How do you mean that in terms of? So I could see you being able to be really small and have, say, five businesses you work with, but then everyone's wearing their own hat and sliding over to fill different roles. Mm -hmm. Um, You could grow that a little bit and have more dedicated people based off of 20 businesses. And then if you had 100 businesses, then you have more departments that are under um under management to produce that volume to to maintain that volume of service and yeah i guess there are two questions here one is how do you see that break even point for different volumes of service and also do you have a sense of how big you want to scale it okay <laughs> That's like, where do I start? <laughs> I know. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think, okay. So for the first one, I, I can and I can't answer it. In terms of the various scales, I think that's, it's, it's too hard to know right now uh-huh. because we're, we're so new. We don't really know which direction we're going to get pulled in. And, and one okay. example for that, we're not quite sure yet whether this is going to be something that, you know, um, very high priced and only, you know, pretty established companies with, you know, mm-hmm. 20 people would be able to afford or rather right. we're going to be able to actually spin something up that also, you know, an individual who's got a YouTube channel could just sign up for it, start it up and get their app going. Or like a podcast. Yeah. Or, or yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I think some of that scaling, it just, it remains to be seen. You know, we don't have enough knowledge yet. Um, in terms of just break even where we're at now, um, I think probably probably 10 to 15 clients would be enough for us to actually just be able to sort of be self-sustaining, you know, to create that perpetual motion machine. And that's with like a seat, uh, more of a business person and then three technical people or? That's, yeah, probably three developers well, that, that also depends. So our business structure, we're, we're kind of incubated at Canon Press and we have a value added reseller agreement with them. So essentially we do profit sharing. So they get some of our revenue in return for lending us um, sales support and customer service and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, so when I say break even, I more mean be able to fully fund the developers. Um, on your own. On our own and, and not be sort of a, a loss for, you know, on, on Canon's balance sheet. Right. Um, 
in terms of, you know, hiring sales and customer service and having the whole self-sustaining machine, I just, I wouldn't be able to say really. Yeah. You know, it, it depends if we go to more of the, if we end up going more of the B2B route, sales becomes very important. You know, you mm-hmm. need a dedicated salesperson who might even, you know, travel and help people kind of onboard. Mm-hmm. If, if we end up with the super self-service option that an individual could get at a fairly low cost, then that's more just, you know, um, buying AdWords. Mm-hmm. So for the second question, I was just realizing you worked at CC Benefits when it was really small. You worked at MZ when it was getting a little bigger. You worked at Amazon. Where do you see, and then you also know people in the industry at, at various, who work in companies at various stages. Where do you see your interest level lying in company size and and why? Yeah. I mean, personal interest level, I, I like smaller companies. I just, I like the, the tighter culture. Um, I do like wearing multiple hats. I like being able to sort of know everyone mm-hmm. and, um, be able to understand what's going on at the business. So mm-hmm. at Amazon where, you know, we could create that in little bubbles, but you really just, you know, I would have all the time, actually, Kyle, you would, you would share Amazon news with me that I had no idea about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, just personally, that's, that's too big. And I think it's really difficult to maintain any sort of consistent culture at that level. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, you know, one of, one of our goals with Treefort is to be, a significant employer of you know of people who are sort of outcasts from the the tech industry for whatever reason there's a lot of christians i know who are losing their jobs or worried about losing their jobs and we want to have we want to be able to um you know sort of provide refuge for them provide uh, a way for um tech workers to support their families and and be a a blessing to the community in moscow you know mz is definitely an inspiration along those lines because they've brought so much talent and so much, um, you know, they've really grown the economy here in Moscow. So, so I don't, I wouldn't want to arbitrarily limit the growth and right, right. Um, keep it small just because of sort of personal taste. Right. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's, there's probably just an upper limit where it would make sense to maybe spin off other businesses. Kind of um, like populated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So doesn't really answer your question. Uh, no, that, that, that's actually exactly what I was looking for. So thanks okay. for going and going through that. <laughs> hmm. How do you think as Christians, we should engage with people who think very differently than us? And, and to the point where, and maybe this is like, this is too close. So we don't talk about it. No, we can talk about that. That's fine. But yeah. So like, how do you engage with people when you, when you disagree with them about, you know, an identity let's say what do you think that jesus like where do you see that where do you see the approach of doing you know essentially yeah see i can't i can't ask the question without how do we how do we speak how do we speak the truth in love and and it's the i think that there's a lot of christians who are super into speaking the truth but the truth without love is no truth at all um it's a clanging symbol right and I think that kind of over the last three years where I've seen a lot of Christians, they insist on truth and f- completely forget about the love. And it's, and I, and I don't mean like love as in like touchy feely, make you feel good about yourself. I'm talking about like, I care for you as a person more than I care about 
your ego more than I care about a relationship. Like I want only the best for you. And I just don't, I like, I've had a lot of conversations with people where they're like, oh, you don't think the same as me. And so we can't be in relationship anymore. And it's like, well, I don't see that in the Bible. And I'm just, I don't know. So I, I'm curious if, if I, either of you have a thought about that. I have thoughts. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you both have thoughts. <laughs> Am I way off base? I'm willing to hear a criticism for sure. I mean, I, I didn't hear anything I necessarily disagree with. It sounds, I mean, it sounds like you're kind of asking too in terms of, in terms of work, you know. Your sure. Yeah. So like, how do we do that in a place where we have wildly different beliefs about why we're here, what we're doing and what's, what's our purpose? Yeah. I mean, I think, I do think the, um, you know, work is a, you know, there are differences between that environment and say, you know, the place of worship, right? For sure. (laughs) Jesus in a synagogue and, you know, Jesus doing carpentry. I'm sure, you know, he had probably different approaches with his relationships there. Although Mm -hmm. we don't have, you know, a lot of examples of of the latter, but, um, you know, I, I, I did make a point, you know, when I started Amazon of just making sure that it was kind of transparent that I was a Christian and mm-hmm. doing that early on because I did not want to end up in a situation where it got awkward for people to realize that or for, mm-hmm. me, to, you know, for me to pray to meal and everyone go, wait, what, what's going on? <laughs> There's also what? just the evangelistic aspect that I don't remember who told me or who told me the story or, or, or who the story was about, but someone, I remember someone in college sharing a story with me about someone in a work setting who came back and told their coworker, Hey, I just became a Christian. And their coworker said, Oh, that's great. I've been praying for you all this time. And the the first person kind of stopped and went, Oh, I thought I needed to share the gospel with you. Cause I didn't even know you were a Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh? Well, good, good job for, you know, praying, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that sort of thing. And, and I, I mean, mm-hmm. kind of along those lines, you know, when you, I think when you do that, the conversations come to you mm-hmm. or they don't, and it, it does set up a completely different environment. I would have, I'd have situations where I'd walk into a room and everyone would get kind of quiet. Cause like, mm-hmm. here comes the Christian and it, you know, it's it's not a great feeling. It's not a great environment when that has to happen. But it does mean that, you know, there's a if people understand where everyone's at, you can kind of avoid certain conversations that don't need to happen at work. Hmm. But then also, you know, um, people knowing I, I was a Christian, you know, would they would talk to me about it and ask me about it. And then when they're asking, it's a um, it's not a situation where you're saying, you know, we disagree and you're wrong and, you know, you, let them ask questions and answer their questions. So Elliot's trying to build a different culture at his place. Oh. <laughs> do you want to learn to code? <laughs> <We> actually... <laughs> What's that? I said, do you want to learn to code? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I like, uh, I'm, I'm really getting really into Power BI um, and like DAX and M, which are kind of languages. They're like baby languages. I actually haven't heard of any of those. So Daniel's um, way into like really good at Excel and mm-hmm. getting good at Power BI. I'm I'm intermediate to advanced in Excel and I'm learning about Power BI, which is are you familiar with the Power like platform from Microsoft? No. It's a lot of business um intelligence kind of stuff. Um so dashboards, KPIs, um and you know, 
yeah, manipulating data, basically. Nice. What are the applications you have for that? Are, are you learning accounting here? Um, so you, you can use it for tons of different stuff. Um, but yeah, so accounting or like, um, I mean, dashboards would be one of, what's that? Data visualization. Data visualization would be the primary one for, for Power BI, but Power Query, um, you can essentially automate reports um, that like in the accounting and operations and like trying to think of another side of the business, maybe um, like something with numbers. Yeah. So like social engagement, so marketing reports, a lot of times there's a handful of services, maybe a company uses five different services and there's for many companies, there's one person whose job it is to pull reports from different places and then create these different kinds of reports. Um, Power BI automates a fair amount of that. Um, so an example of probably the project that saved the most time that I did using Power Query uh, was in order to... Uh, so with construction, when you're doing work for a public agency, typically you have to submit compliance reports. One of those compliance reports is for apprentices. Like how much, how many apprentices did you use on this project? Well, every company has to submit these reports to the same authority, like same authority in the same format. And using Power Query, I could pull all of the data out of those PDFs. And essentially it was like 20, it was like 10 hours per project per month. Um, and all you have to do is like put the PDFs in the folder. So anyway, um, that's, that's one application of it. But if you're manipulating data on a consistent basis, there's a, at least a chance that you can use Power Query to automate that. But anyway, sorry, that's not about TreeFort, which is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's something I'm getting into. I'm like involved on like some LinkedIn communities and learning a lot. Very cool. So if you need anybody to do some data visualization, let me know. I'd at least give a crack at it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So TreeFort, how long have you guys been? A, a different question. Back on to TreeFort. Like, so how long have you guys been doing your work? Like you've, you had three, now you have two. Yeah. I think um, we started April-ish like maybe late April of last year. So we're just over a year now. Okay. Yeah. And is it, does it support you and the other developer, your brother? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> kind of just barely right now. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So we, you know, Canon is still our only client. It's, it's an interesting relationship because we're incubated there, but the software was, you know, the catalyst for it was their needs. So they are also a client of TreeFort. Mm -hmm. And we have other clients kind of lined up the door, uh, lined up out the door at this point, which is pretty exciting. There's a lot of people who want to use the software, mm -hmm. uh, but we're just not quite ready for them yet. So we're, we're really working hard to get um, enough of an MVP together that we can extend beyond Canon. What allows you to operate for and, and this comes back to my ignorance about software product development, but what's the difference between producing a product for one company versus producing a product for 10 companies? What's going to be different about the product or what, or its stage of completion? Yeah. 
there's a there's a few things. One is just um, I, I'd say the the main thing for us right now between sort of Canon and the next is uh, the relationship that we have with Canon. We work with them. They're they're part of the business. They know what's going on, and so we're willing to ship really half baked solutions to them. <laughs> so they're you know, the, the person managing the app over there, we can just tell them, hey, this form is a little bit broken. Here's how you work around the problem. Whereas with the second client, we really don't want to have to do that because yeah. customer service just sort of goes through the roof. Um, so that's that's part of it. And then the second part is um, just the, the level of effort. So we've architected the platform to handle multiple um, clients from the start. That was the plan. So there's not really a bunch of technical rework that needs to happen. But there's a lot of onboarding, there's submitting, there's configuring everything, um, there's submitting new apps to the App Store, which every time you do this, you have to go through a review with Apple and a review with Google and explain to them why there's content they might not like in there, if they reach out to you about that. And, you know, and it's the review processes are actually very human. So hmm. a, a bug might not get caught in one review and then the next review, even though it was in both, it gets caught or, you know, they we just had an experience where our, our Android app had been out for a long time and then we made a little bug fix and submitted it and they said, we don't like your subscription sign, sign up flow at all. You know, you have to redo that. <laughs> so we had to rework that. And so that kind of thing, um, really, that sort of overhead can add to multiple um, clients. Are there consultants at this point that you can go to and say, hey, please vet our product so that we can get a pass the first time who, who will basically say, pass, pass the first time or your money back sort of thing? That's a good question. I'm not sure. If there are, they're probably very expensive because it's an insane process. <laughs> and it's very, you know, I think it's capricious, but it's certainly, it's certainly arbitrary. Um, mm. So, I mean, if you, you know, you'll get rejected for some reason and you'll Google it and there will be a million people complaining on the Apple forums or whatever. And so there's there's actually a fair amount of help. It's just Stack Overflow and all of those okay. developers. So you can kind of is it's almost a problem of being able to search around. You almost need an AI to search around and look for all the common problems or yeah. common loopholes for creating an app that can go on the App Store. Yeah. Well, we do we do avoid loopholes, and this is not me just you know trying to be <laughs> trying not to get the lawyers after us. Uh, the the problem with trying to find the loophole to things is that uh, Apple and Google can at any time just kick you off the App Store and say you're never allowed back. So mm. when they oh. when they tell you to you know jump, you jump. <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds like it. Yeah. So so really, and and they are you know you submit it, and I, I think the first time was probably the most that that was definitely the most unknowns for us. We just had no idea what they're. And um, now we've done it every update as well to the same app you have to resubmit. So we've been through it enough that we're fairly confident in our platform, not getting totally rejected and we know kind of what to look out for. But in terms of, in terms of the consulting, I haven't looked for third party consultants, but I did, Apple has a developer kind of helpline and I called them and I, I told them I, this plan we had for uh, our signup flow I said, Hey, you know, we're doing this kind of complicated migration and we want to show this message on our signup page um, and it had to do with payment, which Apple gets very skittish about because they only want you to use Apple Pay. And if you mention any other payment, they don't like that. So I called them and said, Is, would this be all right? And they said, we uh, we can't tell you until you submit it. You know, they, they basically said, 
they don't want to commit themselves or set precedent when they don't have to. So mm-hmm. their their process is basically submit it to us, and then we'll look at it and decide, and we'll tell you. So if you're creating a white label app for someone else to create an app, why do you have to submit your app to the app store instead of just giving the code base to your client and having them submit their app? That's a good question. And that is actually what happens. So a while ago, there was actually a lawsuit. I can't remember what company it was, but when people first started doing this, just submitting um you know, building a platform and then submitting apps with mostly the same code base, but tweaks for various people. Uh Apple kind of put the kibosh on that and said, no, you can't do that. And then I think it was maybe 2016 or something. Someone sued and, um, and then Apple kind of relented and said, okay, you can, you can make app building platforms, but their caveat was every, the company purchasing the app has to own the, the developer account that manages the app and they have to submit the app. So technically, all of our clients will be submitting the apps. The problem is that if they submit the app and Apple says, you've got to change the sign up screen, that comes you know, back to us, um, right. managing all the code and developing all that. So there's really not much that our clients could do in terms of responding to a rejection from Apple. So that makes it sound like this startup model with Canon as your client is actually advantageous for more reasons than just the financial side. It's also beneficial to have a company who has an app they want to submit that you can beta test with before you sell this to other people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that has been um, really great with, with Canon. We've been able to test the whole platform, get the bugs out, kind of get a lot of learnings. And then when we take that to the next client, really what we're doing is just, you know, changing an image here and, you know, the size of something there and minor, minor configuration options like that, that really aren't even in code. Did you realize that was going to be something you needed to learn? Or was that totally out of left field to learn about submitting an app? Uh, that, that was something that was definitely on our radar. <laughs> that was, okay. you know, kind of the big unknown. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, we don't, we still don't really know what we're doing, <laughs> but there's, that, I mean, that is one of the things I love about development is we don't have any app developers. We don't know how to make an app. And yet here we are with an app company. You know, you can you can find documentation and guides and help everywhere. And there's open source code is a huge deal for us. We find a lot of open source libraries and um, plug those in. So we didn't have to rebuild, you know, an audio subsystem from scratch. We were able to find some libraries that integrate with Android's audio and iOS's audio and mm-hmm. present kind of a, a unified API that we can then use to, to make audio work across both, both platforms without reinventing. So how much of Jackson's job is trolling uh, Git, GitHub? <laughs> yeah, that's why I developer. I mean, we spend a lot of time on GitHub and Stack Overflow. <laughs> Discord is kind of the go-to when uh, big open source libraries actually offer support, which a lot of them do. Um, I think I think because they're funded by companies and you know they they think the benefit of pull requests and help coming back to them is worth it. So um, oh. Discord is kind of a go-to tool. They'll set up a Discord server and you can sign in, and there's just people there who will help you, which is pretty wild. So they've almost outsourced their test. Yeah, yeah. That's I think you know hmm. when I th- when I see open source, the way I see most smaller projects going, the 
the value of open sourcing is you immediately get tons of testing and tons of feedback. And every once in a while, someone really experienced will jump in and just help you solve a problem. But that tends to be a lot more rare. Most, most of the time, people just come and kind of complain <laughs> that, the, you know, that the free thing they're getting isn't quite to their liking. <laughs> um, what language are you coding in? We are pretty much, so we use GitLab, which is sort of an open source alternative to GitHub, and it gives you a little slider of the percentage of languages in your repo. And I think it's, uh, I could probably check, but I think it's something like 99.5% TypeScript, hmm. which is, it's a layer, it's a, a sort of statically typed layer that is bolted on top of JavaScript. Uh, okay. Microsoft manages it. It's I have very mixed feelings about it. Yeah. I actually dragged my feet for a long time mm. at Amazon. Everyone was adopting it, and I really didn't want to because philosophically I was sort of against it. And then when we started TreeFort, I just sort of bit the bullet because it's the way the industry was going and learned it. And I've I've learned to I've learned to love it. I don't know if it's Stockholm syndrome or if I do actually mm. genuinely love TypeScript. What were your philosophical reservations with TypeScript? Well, JavaScript, I do love JavaScript, but it's a pretty messy language. The, the story is that it was actually developed in, I think, two weeks by this guy named Brendan Eich back in 1995, the entire language. Wow. So it's, you know... Uh, he is a very smart individual. He's very smart, and the language has some really cool features, but there's lots of quirks. Things like, um, you know, I think I think one times zero is actually zero point, you know, 10 zeros and a one because of the way integers or, you know, floating point was in- implemented. Very huh. odd things like that that will constantly come back and bite you. Huh. Um, so it's 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 not you know, it's uh you know you can learn to love it for its quirks, but it's not necessarily a great foundation to build another language on top of. Mm-hmm. And TypeScript does that; it adds another layer and then it adds static types to it. So um, a, a statically typed language, I think when you when you declare a variable, you say this is the type it is. It's you know it's mm-hmm. a string of characters or it's a number and then. That's, That's how VBA is. Okay, yeah. Which I should really like help. But the other thing TypeScript did is they said we're going to do that, but then we're sort of it's sort of opt in. Um, you can you can statically type or not, which was a, a an interesting choice. I think that's why it's done so well because you can sort of slowly adopt TypeScript, hmm. but it does mean you're in this world where you have half of your code base has guarantees that says you know this will always work, and half says half has no guarantees. And when you mash that together, you sort of end up with fewer than no guarantees. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but it, it is, you know, I've, I've learned to really like it. It has some. So is TreeFort statically typed or because you're pulling stuff from open source libraries, are you not able to do that? I mean, that's the thing. These days, almost every library is either written in TypeScript, every JavaScript library and sort of our um, our JavaScript domain is either it's either TypeScript or people will publish the types. So you can actually, you have the JavaScript code that the library vendor publishes and someone will write all the types for it and publish those. So I don't think we've, we've run into maybe one library out of the hundred we've used that didn't, you know, didn't have any types. So technically I thought Apple apps were written in Swift or objective C. Yes. (laughs) But what happened there? Uh, that's astute of you. Yes, uh, we are using this thing called React Native, which there are so many layers to the stack. Let me know if this is getting too like. Uh, this is interesting to me. Well, so we're actually interviewing in two podcasts 
a, I don't even, he's a software developer, but he has like a agency and they, like he's super passionate about React Native. Okay. So you're going to give us a little bit of a precursor, which could be a super um, technical conversation that me and Kyle might not be able to follow at all. Yeah, I could I could try to give you the the, the high level, the 30,000 foot view. Sure. Basically, so React is a, it's a, it was originally a web library for rendering views that came from Facebook. So Facebook, you know, has one of the, you know, one of the biggest web apps out there and they saw this need for, it's called declarative, uh, declarative, uh, unidirectional data flow. There's a bunch of kind of buzzwords that react fits into, but basically what react boils down to is you, you know, you have data and you want to transform that into a view on the screen mm-hmm. and react helps you do that. It started out for the web and then Facebook realized this is a really nice way to write UIs. So they took that that same paradigm and created React Native, which allows you to re- write the view for a native app, so an iOS or an Android app, in JavaScript like you would for the web using the React framework like you um, can for the web. And then React Native is a layer that actually transforms that view into the view language that native iOS apps and native Android apps actually expect. So you're mm-hmm. not... You know, this uh, a lot of people have you know, are, are or a lot of developers or even developer adjacent people kind of um, are familiar with when you when you find an app and it's actually a, a website stuffed into an app shell. Like you can kind of feel that. Mm-hmm. That's those are called web views, and that used to be how you, if you wanted to just build a website but serve it as an app, that's what you'd do. You'd basically stuff a browser inside your app and just render your website. React Native is super cool because you you write your code like you were doing that. You we just have one code base for the web, Android, iOS, and iOS. Um, hmm. But because Facebook has built React Native, which is this this layer that transforms that into actual native views, then it, it feels a lot more like a native app. You can tell it's not it's not just hmm. the, a website stuffed in there. So it's you know scrolling is smoother. You can do you can integrate at a lower level with things like the camera and the cool yeah does that make sense it does to me what about you kyle i i've had conversations with people working in react native before i guess perfect kyle's way ahead of it he is he could have explained that to you i guess is what i'm getting so So, yeah and it is one of the things about i i do like react native but you know it's you are you know you are 30 feet high on a jenga stack and there's just so many layers of, you know, there's TypeScript and then there's JavaScript and then there's React and then there's React Native and then there's the React Native mm. native layer and then there's the actual phone system. And so mm. things things tend to go wrong. And when they do, you're you're sort of fine looking for a needle in the haystack. Yeah. But that said, we were able to, you know, it took us nine months to build an app that's a progressive web app and get on the iOS store and the Android store and not have... You know, and have a, a pretty good experience. Yeah. What does progressive mean in progressive web app? Uh, good question. I think it means there's a, there's this term called progressive enhancement uh, that kind of came out of the web development community. And it, it really came out of the huge variance in browsers and the various features that browsers support. Mm-hmm. So for a long, not now like all browsers are great and they basically support everything. But for a long time, you had to support IE6 that basically wouldn't let you do anything. And then a bunch of people had Chrome where you could do super cool stuff. 
and people were having to decide, do we support IE6 and, you know, our website's pretty lame or do we just support Chrome and it's amazing. And people came up with this uh, way of building apps called progressive or this, this sort of, I, you know, I, 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 if any old school programmers listening to this, they'll probably say, Hey, this has been around since the eighties or whatever. But, but in the web community, what that means is basically you can, you add the really cool feature to your web app for the new browser but you make it still work in IE6. So that's the progressive enhancement. Okay. Um, you progressively enhance it to the client. So the nicer the client is, the cooler the experience or the, the better the experience they get. And so for, for a progressive web app, it just really those, um, that, that is more targeted towards that level of experience where the, the web app and native app, like they start to overlap where you can actually add it to your home screen or you can run it when you're not connected to the internet those sort of features are are key progressive web app features. How do you stay close to the ground when you're creating a product with a Jenga set? Yeah. Are there are there things that you kind of rules you set in place with your development team to make sure you don't get too far away from the ground? Or is it even possible to do that? It's impossible. Yeah. Okay. I mean uh to start a business like this, like if just to name a few of the services we rely on. So, well, there's the, there's the layers of abstraction just right in the software itself, which, you know, there's thousands of engineers, like by the time it gets to us, there's probably well over, you know, it's probably close to a hundred thousand engineers, right. When you uh-huh. consider operating system development at Apple all the way up to us building our little app. But then on top of that, there's services that we have to integrate with. So, you know, we need to send transactional emails. So there's a service we use for that. We need hosting. So there's a service for that. We need a global content delivery network, servers kind of around the globe that can get our, you know, our JavaScript to people super fast. So there's a service for that. We have a service to transcode audio to the right bit rate. Um, So if we were to do all that ourselves, we would just never have a business. (laughs) So there are the things maybe the the things you can do to mitigate it is just doing your research when choosing, you know, you know, you're not going to be able to do something yourself. So you do your research and make sure you're choosing an option that is, you know, not going to come back to bite you. It will scale with you. We add on, you know, when we're choosing in particular, when we're signing up with a SaaS company, another company that's going to provide us with a service for us, we'll look at their terms of service and their acceptable use policy and their you know, Twitter presence to kind of figure out how likely is it, are they going to, you know, for them to boot us off their platform if they don't like what we're doing? Mm. Um, yeah. So are there really any, I mean, from, from that, like what you just explained, as far as being close to the ground, are there any companies that do that at this point that don't rely on these thousands of other engineers or do you know? The closest one is probably have, well, there's the, there's, you know, there are companies that are at a much lower level. So if you were doing, you know, if you were just doing transactional, well, I, even that, I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> I'd say the closest one is probably Gab, if you've heard of them, because so Gab is like kind of a Twitter alternative um, hmm. started by this Christian guy. They got, they actually, they have an interesting, there, there's a pretty, like there's some, some pretty interesting sort of sub communities on gab that are not, you know, pretty unsavory. Mm -hmm. Um, But the real kicker was that they got accused of uh, B 
being used to organize the the January 6th protests or something like that, Hmm. which was actually not true, but they were accused of that. And so they got kicked off of the app store, like both app stores, Apple and Google. Um, I think even, I think even Visa has blacklisted um, the founder and his family. It's, they've been dropped by like every email provider they've had, every hosting provider they've had, that sort of thing. So they have, um, I think, I don't know, where I learned about this it was a blog or a podcast, but the, the founder's name is Andrew Torba. And if you look him up, mm-hmm. read his, his story, all that. but yeah, but um, they're probably the closest just because out of necessity, they have not been able to rely on anyone else. Huh? That's wild. That's not our, you know, if we That's could not your... easily be shut down tomorrow, if someone really wanted to, our goal is to sort of eventually work to a place where we can, we can actually be somewhat resilient to that, but I think mm-hmm. you you either have to not be in the in the domain that we are. You have to shoot much smaller. You know, we're gonna really just we're gonna provide web something like mm. that. Pick kind of like uh, a lower lower level service to offer, mm-hmm. or you have to. So, speaking of resilience, do you think the Lightning Network play into that sort of resilience at all, or do you think that's a total pipe dream? I can't speak to that. I don't know enough about it. But do you think it will? <laughs> you could enlighten me. I don't know. I, I've been I've been talking to the guy who stole your employee about it. He thinks oh, yeah. it has promise. Uh, for the rest of us in this podcast, uh, what's the Lightning Network or whatever? I can give I can give my my two second understanding of it. That'll be two seconds more than I have. The Lightning Network is a network it's, it's a... <laughs> all right well it's been it's been real fun uh thanks so much <laughs> the lightning network is a is a network of servers that cover their costs via bitcoin transactions so the idea is you have smart contracts that govern use of servers around the network and those smart contracts are funded in Bitcoin. So if I have a server, I put out, uh, say, 15 million Satoshis on that on that server. Uh, I think it's 100 million Satoshis to a Bitcoin or something like that. At any rate, put out some small percentage of Bitcoin, of a Bitcoin out on the server, which enables basically it puts out a bank from which to pay others for services to send um, files and others then pay me for the use of my server. So it's a way of running hmm. servers in a decentralized manner. Cause instead of having one company that has, instead of having Google who has, a ads business that generates enough revenue for them to run servers, to run the internet around the world. Mm -hmm. You have a bunch of mom and pop servers that are funded via temporary rental, continuous temporary rental of their server time to um, have a worldwide network, a worldwide web. So is it, you've got all these people who purchase a server and they're essentially able to connect into a network and rent out and 
then basically people pay them rent for use of that service. Exactly, exactly. And because it's all done with smart contracts, the idea is that it could be cheap enough to rent out that time that it would basically cover the electricity and then a little bit more. But you aren't having to pay a Visa or a MasterCard their service fee Mm. or, or a bank their service fee to pay for all of their human organizational structure. Hmm. Okay. That's, that's, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I, I have, I have thought about sort of the decentralized push with, is it, is it web 3.0? That's like, yeah, they're calling all the, the blockchain stuff. And I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I understand it enough to have a super educated opinion, but I'll give you my, my uneducated thoughts, <laughs> but that's the, what we're the, here for. I mean, the, the whole, yeah, <laughs> great. <laughs> that, there's my introduction. Here's Elliot. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, ob, you know, obvious, it seems kind of obvious that the decent, a decentralized system like that would be more resilient in terms of sort of one node getting booted off because there has to be, you know, consensus between a lot of people as opposed to just one intern at Google has a button that can just kick you off, you know, mm-hmm. but the, the downside of that sort of decentralization is that it's so complex. Right. So we're, you know, Treeford in particular is in the business of taking something complex, like building an app and a monetization system and all that, and trying to make it really simple for people where you could just right. sign up and give them an app, drag and drop and, you know, start selling subscriptions to your content. And, you know, I do think those two things are somewhat at odds. You know, the, the reason mm-hmm. sort of the reason Google controls so much of the the web is it's really nice to just go to one, you know, Google.com and you can get anywhere, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to have a million bookmarks and be tracking all that stuff. Or sign in with Google is maybe another example where, you know, it's a lot easier to centralize your password, just have one Google account than to go and create a password, you know, a separate account at every website you visit. So that's the, the sign in with Google button is it's sort of like a human problem. Decentralization yeah. is a really cool technical solution, but mm-hmm. is it good for humans? I don't know. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All the people I know who get excited about it are very technical. Yeah. My hope I is that reason people that. who are much smarter than I am will figure out how to make it easy. And then tree can just, you know, slot it where it needs to be slotted in. Yeah. Yeah. Kyle, did you ever read that article I sent you about Web 3.0? And yeah. he was pretty down on it. Did that seem like uh, these are not very interesting, um, what do you say, critiques? No, I thought they were they were valid critiques. I thought um, looking at his Twitter, he seemed to have an agenda as well. Oh, really? To push back against it. And I don't know if it's a thing where he's gotten burned by some people in the web 3.0 community who have trolled him on Twitter. And so it's kind of get back at you, but one of the, do you, could you, I think you understand web 3.0 better than I do. And maybe even his critiques, do you remember well enough to like, say like broad strokes, this is what it's been so long. What, and honestly it was kind of, it was a little bit in the, in one year and out the other, after digging into uh, the guy the stuff he yeah written. Okay. Um, but w- one of the really good critiques that I read was by uh, O'Reilly 
is the guy's last name. And he's kind of been the document. He's been the, I guess the, the person who's documented uh, tech from the eighties through today. Wow. And so he's seen a lot in terms of what has happened in the evolution of technology. And he wrote a piece, actually, Elliot, it was James Hill who sent it to me. Um, who's actually someone else I'd love to have on this podcast to talk about what he's done at popularly. But he sent me O'Reilly's take on Web3. And basically what he said is every technological, this is a technological innovation, but in every technological innovation, you go through a period of early adoption and then there's hype and then there's the hype crashes and then out of the wreckage of that crash, people then build actually useful things. Mm. And the takeaway from his article was, where do you think, judge, I'm not going to tell you where we're at in the cycle, but look around, judge for yourself, where in the cycle are we? Are we early adoption? Are we crash? Are we building cool stuff after the crash? Or are we in hype? And to me, we're probably still, we're on the tail end of hype. Yeah. You think we're at the tail end? I Maybe hope so. <laughs> we're, we're at the start of the tail. I guess I'd say we're at the start of the tail end. We've only had one crypto really significantly crash and burn so far, what and was that? that was Terra. I don't know. The, someone was telling me about the U.S. dollar coin. <laughs> Is that that was U.S. That was U.S. Terra. Okay. So so Terra was the underlying currency. Um, essentially the so you have Dai, which is uh, Ethereum-backed, uh, an Ethereum-backed smart contract stablecoin. US Terra was the stablecoin version of Terra, and when Terra started to go down, US Terra went from being pegged to the dollar to being it was yeah. under twenty cents last <laughs> I looked. And the interesting thing about that was that. In order to state, in order to try and stabilize things, the 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 proprietors of Terra tried to say that they had one and a half billion in Bitcoin, one and a half billion dollars in Bitcoin ready to to back up Terra. So they were essentially using Bitcoin as the uh, currency of last resort and trying to convince people that it was going to be okay because of that. It's like it's like we're sticking to the gold standard, but but we instead of gold, we've got pesos, and we'll trade those for gold if it like really comes to it. Right, <laughs> something. Right. Huh? Yeah, I think I. Yeah, for me, like Bitcoin, Web three all of that is like this is not something that I have any understanding or bandwidth to try and figure out, and so. Uh, great. If you can make some money at it, this, I, like it lost a trillion dollars last week, I guess, or something like that. So I'm like, it's a, it's a, it's a nothing burger for me. I'm like, well, I, that probably sucks for a lot of people. It's right around where I bought originally. Ooh, this is, it sounds, it sounds like Daniel, you'd like to be done talking about crypto. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> Do you have one more thing? This, maybe this is old news. My brother-in-law was just telling me today that, um, Either Coinbase just updated the terms of service or, or people just got wise. People just it. figured it out. People just figured it out. Okay. So have you already talked about this then? Yeah. 
Tell me, Elliot. Coinbase is like a uh, an online exchange for cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's centralized. So it's super easy to use. So a lot of people buy Bitcoin there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, they have something in their terms of service that say if they go bankrupt, then your account just like goes away. Dates and they get like, you know, the, I guess. Oh, no. Their debts or I don't know. So it's it's sort of like if your bank was like, you know, also, if there's a bank run, we just take your money, you know, <laughs> which is a. Uh, Oh no! Uh, that's great for them. Great for Coinbase. Well, I, well, I mean, these, it's kind of it would still be bad for them because they would have gone bankrupt. But that's true. That's it'd be true. good. It's good for their uh, creditors. Ah, uh, that's probably part of why they were able to get. How long has Coinbase been around that that people are just finding out about this? Like it's been a while, right? Like Coinbase was one of the big first big exchanges. It's like 2013 or 2012 or something. Man, I was that guess 2014. That really tells you how close people read the the yeah, terms I, of service. I've got some stuff on Coinbase that, like, right after this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> taking it out. Told me uh, right before, yeah. Hmm. Did you ever get a hardware wallet? No, I. I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, busy working. Fair. Yep. Three, yeah. All the time. I bad. actually got to get. I actually got to get going. Um, I can leave it on and you guys can chat if there's some more questions that you have, Kyle. That's what you did last time with uh, Isaac. I was like, what's his name? And Tyler. And Tyler. Did you? I didn't leave when you were talking with Tyler, did I? I think so. Yeah, I just, I, at after nine, I just kind of like, tucker, I'm tuckered out. Elliot, we should just get coffee or, or beer sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hear Bud Light's pretty good. <laughs> It's well, Keystone over here, Daniel. Keystone. Is that the... What is that? That's the, that's the college beer. Uh, I just had my first Coors, which I, you know, I uh, I guess craft beer has kind of been around since I've been beer and I've stuck to that, but that mm. was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, man, what, you know, it's fine. It's whatever, cold. whatever you like. It's, it's I've actually, flavored, yeah. Flavored water. I had a pabst once and i was really excited about it but that was partially because i was it was the end of a backpacking trip and i was starving and it came with the thai food that i ordered it was like this little food cart and they <laughs> you, you got a pabst and with your thai food it was great was that when you hiked the pct it was with david and tyler i don't remember that was for part of the, i mean does david hike anything that's not the pct these days elliot it was really nice to meet you and talk with you Yeah, it's good to meet you. Hey guys, Daniel Hayward again. Thanks for listening. Thank you Explore for the music and Elliot for being a guest. We'll talk again soon. Mm